You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. To the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I would like to read just the first few verses, beginning with verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking And in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God who has called you into fellowship with his Son Jesus Christ. Our Lord is faithful. This is God's word. Let us pray. May the words of God fill our heart and mind. May we speak only of you, dear Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I just want to speak briefly tonight of three areas that strike me as we come before this particular passage. Grace shown means a real walk, a display of the life of Jesus Christ in us. Um, I want to have us remember as we come before this, especially since this is a time of real testing in our country. Many have lost a lot financially these days. In fact, I have a friend who was very rich, but because of one disastrous reversal, became very poor. But his poverty made me and you very rich, though we did not deserve it. I want to talk about our enrichment in Christ. There's a lot of thoughts in this epistle. I want to just skim a couple things on the richness that Christ gave us. I was just reading this week in National Geographic. Uh, Most of us have a symbolical amount of gold in our houses. Many of you have a ring made of gold here tonight. What I was astounded to find was that, according to National Geographic, all the gold 
of all the world, whether from the gold of Ophir, from the mines of South Africa, from the western Sierras, from Alaska, from all the continents of the world, all the gold that has ever been discovered and mined and produced can fit into two Olympic-sized swimming pools. That's not very much, is it? There may be much more, but that's all we have found. But God, in his richness, has poured out so many blessings through us, through Christ to us. Our riches are not in monetary terms, but our riches come through him. The scripture says, you have been enriched in every way. And to me, it's very significant when you look at the epistle of the epistles of the Scripture, but just particularly tonight, the epistle of 1 Corinthians. Some of the riches that he elicitates are found, first of all, in verse 30, where it says, Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. He enriched us just with his own person. Chapter 2, verse 2, Know this, says the Apostle Paul, Know that Jesus Christ and him crucified is what I preached. It always gets down to the basic of the most valuable thing that a person could ever possess is the knowledge of the Lord. In chapter 3, verse 6, the servants of God should realize that the growth comes from God himself. Growth in the life The growth of the gospel, it comes from God. Chapter 4, verse 15. The children of God should realize that their value is in knowing the apostle Paul, these Corinthians, that they would learn to appreciate him as a spiritual father, one who led and loved them with the gospel, the Christ he preached, that it would be poured out into their life. In chapter... Uh, 6, we read in verse 19 and 20 of the riches of the Holy Spirit poured into his temple, you and me, and we are to glorify and glory God in our living. In chapter 7, we are exclaimed to be God's free men, 723, bought with a price. In chapter 8, verse 4, some of the other riches include only one God. And that's our Lord God. In him we have confidence. And in comparison, idols have no existence. Some years ago we were visiting London and we took a tour of the largest Hindu temple, as I recall, outside of India. One of our team members, this was their first mission trip, and she said when we went into the Hindu temple... She was just so terrified when she saw this moment where the, the leader of the temple got in front of an idol and sort of went through cer- certain motions to infuse this, this idol. And it, it just struck her. And I, I just said, after we had this experience, I said, you know, an idol's nothing. Paul says that. Demons might be at work, but an idol is nothing. Don't fear it. That's exactly what Paul said to these people in Corinth. And then we read in chapter um, 11, excuse me, in chapter 10, 
Christ is our purpose. Christ, the value and the riches of Jesus Christ, is all that Paul urged the people to live for and to give God the glory. In everything, he says, what you do and what you eat and everything, give God the glory. You know, this is a Super Bowl Sunday, and a lot of people today will be rooting for one team or the other. But what really blesses me is that amidst all this sporting event, on each team there are people who genuinely love the Lord. And sometimes when a a very good action occurs, you'll see one of the members stop after the play is over and raise his hand and point skyward, and that's his way of giving glory to God. I think that's great. I'm just glad that we see people that do that and raise in the context of difficult work. Now, on the other side of that, aren't you glad tonight that you don't uh, have to take a ball and uh, run uh, through another opponent if you have the ball as a carrier and run through another opponent who is a Christian. Can you imagine if our friend Dr. Light tried to take the football and run into Dr. Rogers? It would be all over for dear John. (laughs) But I'm so glad that after the play, neither one, whoever won or lost the battle, both of them would stand up and point skyward and give glory to God as they do in all their living. That's what we want to see. Always God wants to see his name glorified in everything we do. So tonight, later, look for those who love the Lord and do that. Christ is our purpose in everything we do. Later in chapter 11, as we did this morning, Paul simply says, remember Jesus Christ when you participate in the bread and the cup. That gripped him and it grips us every time we come. He is the one we want to remember when communing. We're also told in chapter 12 that we are one body. We are not to brag in any way except that we have been cleansed by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 13, we're urged to love and love at its very best. In chapter 14, in the context of being enriched, we're told to pursue love and do it in an orderly fashion in worship. In chapter 15, that great chapter where we're told that the very gospel is what should occupy us and we should be realizing that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day. A victorious kingdom is coming and has already started. Paul was an eyewitness of this, and this he testified to. And as it says in later in chapter 15, the grace that he received from the Lord, he worked so hard. In fact, he says, I worked harder than any other apostle that Christ might be preached and that the people might believe in him. And finally, chapter 16, although it's sort of a, a side allusion, but earlier in the epistle, the Corinthians who were bragging about the kind of lifestyle they lived after the order of Cephas and after the order of Apollos and after the order of 
of Paul, and some even claimed higher, following Christ better. He turns that around in chapter 16 and says, you know, give glory to God and recognize that we have all been enriched. Take notice of three men, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. I bet you very few of us have heard those names. We think of the early part of the book. But God recognizes all servants who with enthusiasm are enriched to serve the Lord and to, and to do his purposes. We have been so enriched through our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, secondly, our expectation of him. We read that in this passage. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. This waiting means action on the part of the Corinthians. The idea is eagerly expecting the Lord's coming while evangelistically expressing. It's attitude with altitude. Back in 1953, when Edmund Hillary and his Sherpa guide, Tenzing, sought to go up the highest mountain. They didn't settle for K2. They went for Everest, the highest mountain, and succeeded in in going higher in altitude, and their goal was of the highest attitude. Well, the revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ demands proper living. In chapter 3, he says that other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, Jesus Christ. We build on him. Our waiting on him makes us to live a proper life by his grace. You know, in this context, uh, there are a lot of considerations when you read through the Corinthian epistle. In a sense, Paul butters them up and then he batters them down. There is much difficulty in the church of Corinth. Just a couple references. In chapter 4, verse 8, we notice this expression. Already you have all you want Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. I won't belabor it, but their attitude was such that they were acting like kings. Um, I just finished within this last year a uh, a biography of Queen Victoria, and uh, George III, the king of England, uh, had some so many sons, several sons, but their lifestyle was so disreputable that uh, they really did not succeed in uh, being a good king. There are such dangers with such power. There are such attractions, such worldliness. This morning, Dr. Rogers was reading in Revelation and all the tortures, torturous things that happened to believers as the world would live its profligate lifestyle, in its wealth, in its style of living, in its comforts, in its ease. And yet at the end comes a great judgment. Well, I 
think that most of us have been spared not having that temptation. Kings were very powerful people. In reading about Peter the Great this year, uh, one of his competitors, Louis XIV, was such a powerful man, but his life was so corrupted by wealth and women, he just had no character. There is a great temptation this way. And Paul recognized it when he looked at the Corinthian lifestyle and he said, you're, you're as it were, living like a king. Start living as a servant. Bring your life into conformity to Jesus Christ. They were wise guys. They thought they knew everything. And Paul said, you don't know much. That's chapter 4. Chapter 5, he deals with the issue of their immorality. There's hardly much needs to be said about the kind of age that we're living in. But you're not like that. You're a follower of Jesus, says Paul to the Corinthians. Get things corrected. Come before the Lord. In chapter 8, he speaks about their insensitivity to the weaker brothers. In chapter 10, he corrects them in their idolatry. In chapter 11, he speaks of their ignorance of really imitating Christ. In chapter 12 and following, he talks about their glorifying their gifts and not the giver. Paul comes down very hard on these who are of Corinth. I want to have a quotation here from Dr. John Calvin. He speaks about God's rule over the affairs of men. And he mentions two common errors that we make that we should avoid. Though through the kindness of God as well as his severity can cause can can sometimes be clearly discerned in history and other times the causes of events are hidden. This prompts some to imagine that human affairs are whirled about by the blind impulse of fortune, and others to talk as if God were amusing himself by tossing men up and down like balls. Christians, instead, believe that the counsel of God accords with the highest reason. In all events, his purpose is either to train his people to patience, correct their immorality, tame their wantonness, bolster their self-denial, arouse them from lethargy, or, for those who don't know the Lord, to cast down the pride, the proud, and defeat the schemes of the enemies of the faith. No matter how much his specific reasons may escape our notice, we may be sure that the reason lies in him. So we can exclaim with David, Many, O Lord, are the wonders you have done, the things you plan for us. No one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. And Calvin continues, That being said, we must also note how Christ declares that there is something more in the secret counsel of his Father 
than merely the desire to chastise us. For he says of the man who was born blind, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. John 9. Christ declares that if we had clear eyes, we would see even in such a case that the glory of his Father is brightly displayed, so we must not compel God to render an account for his ways, but in modesty respect his hidden judgments. On the other hand, when it comes to this topic, many display monstrous foolishness. The subject, they subject the works of God to their reasoning, presume to know his secret counsels and pass premature judgment on things that are ultimately a mystery. What can be more preposterous than to insult the hidden judgments of God? It is no wonder that so many today tear at the doctrine of providence with venom teeth or assail it with their bark. To be sure, even in the law and the gospel, we encounter mysteries that transcend our ability to comprehend. But since God enlightens our minds with a spirit of understanding, they are now no longer an abyss, but a path in which we can walk safely, a lamp to guide our feet, a light of life, a school of clear and certain truth. But God's admirable method of governing the world is justly called an abyss because while it lies hidden from us, it is to be reverently adored. Perhaps that's why when the pain seems so great when the counsel of the Word of God comes into a life, There may seem for some no way out, but that actually is the way on, the way of the gospel. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, two uh, cousins of the the original characters, Eustace Scrub and Jill Pole, um, heading into this land of Narnia with an assistant, a marsh wiggle, named Puddleglum, discover that Prince Rallian had been captivated by a beautiful woman with a green dress. Really a witch. Really a great green serpent. And he was captive and tied in a silver chair. And I'm not going to give the whole story, but basically in a fit of normalcy, he cried out for cords to be cut in the name of Aslan. When he was for an hour in his right mind, he was tied. He needed to be released when he was in his right mind, and only this lion Aslan could give him his sanity back. Certainly, Eustace was a help in this because he had been turned into basically a dragon by eating dragon food. 
And only Aslan's claws could cut through the captivity that Eustace had. And it would take the cutting of Aslan's claw to release him. In a real sense, the word of God comes upon us as we expect to follow the Lord. We expect Christ to come soon. We ask him to guide us this day. We ask him to give us our daily bread. We remind ourselves of his word that says, forgive us those who sin us against us and forgive us our sins. These are the things that we do as believers. We wait on God's word to come into our life and to correct us from all our mistakes. Our expectation of Christ, our knowledge of his coming into our life each day with the Word of God is such a great blessing. Somebody told long ago, one of the great Bible teachers said, uh, you know, God's coming determines the way I live. If you expect the Lord to come soon at any minute, however long or short that is, knowing that we will be serving Jesus will be a blessing. And Paul talks about that very clearly in that first chapter. As you wait earnestly and eagerly for Christ to be revealed. Well, finally, I want to talk about one final thing, and that is our encouragement by him. Notice the last few verses says, He will keep you blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Interesting, in the Greek, it begins that whole phraseology with the word faithful. The emphasis, as we look at it, may think, well, we've got to be faithful. But really, the idea here is that faithful is the one. That's Christ who is there with us. He is right there beside us. Our walk is in him, and because he is there, he keeps us stabilized. In Acts chapter 18, when the apostle Paul was brought by the Lord into the city of Corinth, and on his second missionary journey, uh, this city where, you know, it was a great trade route, it was a, a business center, it was an idolatrous place. His first visit there, the first coming with the gospel. And I don't know whether he got the case of the nerves, but he speaks in Acts 18 that during the night, God came to him in a vision and said, Don't be afraid. Don't fear. I'll be with you. I'll be right beside you. I have many people in this city. <laughs> we always need to hear that, don't we? We need to remember that. Wherever God has placed us, we are to be used of him, witnesses for him, testimonies to the light, avoiding the darkness, and showing the love of Christ in our walk. He keeps us stable. He won't let us go. He is faithful. And through this, too, is our, our fellowship. Uh, he's, because he's right there beside us, he'll get us going when we need. He's there when we lag. 
number of years ago when I could still run before I tore my knee up. I entered the effort of firecracker race and uh, with my sons, but when my daughter was just three years old, I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> but when she was three, uh, she wanted to run the race with Daddy. Not that we were racing. I was happy just to finish it. <laughs> and uh, by and large, she finished it that year, and then the next year when she was four, and then the next year when she was five. Now, I wasn't running beside her uh, to uh, show her what a great runner I was. That first time, she got a little tired, and I would slow down and be right there with her. And then when we'd be going down a hill, she might run a little faster, and I would be right there. And while I was there, I would say, how you doing? You doing okay? Hey, there's some water on the side of the road. Let's fill up, take a sip. Oh, how that would refresh her. And guess what? She could pursue on a little further and keep going. My fellowship was right there beside her, helping her, making sure she was tuned up so she could do the race. Isn't that how our Lord is? He is never going to leave us. He is not going to forsake us. Romans chapter 8 says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things. Christ will be there, right beside us, giving us everything we need in the race. Take heart, every one of us, take heart. When things get down, they can't get anything but better. And remember, right beside us is our wonderful Lord. And notice it says in the Scripture, not only that, but He will keep you blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 after verse 32, has this verse. Who will bring any charge against mine elect? Though many charges could be brought against us, our Savior has transformed us, made us new. We now can run beside Him. Nobody will accuse us. And that word, blameless, speaks of being guiltless. Uh, unimpeachable, says one commentator. Have you ever had the experience of being stopped by a policeman because you were going too fast or your lights weren't on or whatever other traffic violations? Guess what? You were arrested. <laughs> and it is a humbling feeling to get stopped and wait for him to fill out the forms. And you are sitting there wondering, what will the penalty be? That's very uncomfortable. Praise God, because of what he did at Calvary, and because of the penalty he paid by the blood of his cross, we will not be impeachable on the day of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says, Because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, has made us alive. And Colossians 2.13 says, When you were dead, canceled, he canceled the law and made you alive. That's a paraphrase. And Galatians chapter 3, in verse 5, we read, God had the law and it was 
The law was put in charge of us to lead us to Christ, in whom we are free and belonging to him. Now we have crucified the sinful nature, and we glory in the cross of Christ. It is the cross, and it is our Lord who is there in every step of the way. We have been enriched by him with all the riches of his grace, freely given in the Gospels and in his epistles. We are expecting him, and we are encouraged by him. When I sometimes travel to my wife's family's house up in New York, uh, in New Hampshire, we travel through the New England states, and we cut on Route 290 through the town of Worcester, Massachusetts. I always take a look when heading north to the right, because there's one little strip about a mile off Mass Pike where this college is located. It's the College of the Holy Cross. Now, I know you're not Catholics like, like that, nor am I, but I always find it fascinating because on every building and every parapet there in Worcester, Holy Cross College has a cross erected on the very top of every building. I suppose it's a reminder to all the students of what the college is all about. Well, do we not also look to Jesus Christ, our great Savior? Though we don't see his cross, we know it was a bloody one. And he paid the price for you and me. He encourages us daily by the blood that he spilt for us. Years ago, someone wrote a little chorus, and it goes something like this. I think it encapsulizes the thought of this passage in verses 4 through 9. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every day with Jesus. I love him more and more. Jesus saves and keeps me, and he's the one I'm waiting for. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Let us pray. Our Father, we rejoice in knowing you, our great Lord, almighty God, and that you, for the sake of your glory, for the purpose of your eternal plan, sent your Son, our Savior. O oh Lord, how you have enriched us, how you encourage us to expect you, and how well you do encourage us to walk in your way. Bless us this day and this week as we would serve you in gladness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.